If that thing out there really is some sort of a human proto-crap hybrid, then we're yesterday's model. This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, that's The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and this week, the last in this series of podcasts for The Expanse, I'm joined by my colleague, Annalie Newitz. Hi, Annalie. How are you doing? Okay. Well, that was a very emotional, action-packed um, ending. I liked some of the... Sh- I-, I loved the scene where they, the Arbogast gets rapidly dissembled in Venus. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, I loved <laughs> watching, on top of everything else, uh, I loved watching Adam Savage yes. in his cameo sort of yep. floating in space. <laughs> the surprised expression on his face um, was excellent. Um, but also it kind of left us wondering what that moment was supposed to symbolize because I I felt like that wasn't literally happening. Or maybe if it no, was... No, no, that, that was literally happening. Yep. The protomolecule basically suspended physics and just dissembled that spaceship and presumably the Martian one as well to to work out to see how they work so it's not like they're going into some kind of noosphere newosphere type thing where they're like now they've entered the realm of pure thought or, no in the, you know, in, in the book they keep the protomolecule i think dissembles all the people as well which i guess they didn't they decided not yeah to which i feel like we had already had a hint of that with what happened to miller um, and what happened to Julie Mao is it's, that Miller was about to be sort of taken apart and yep. that uh, Julie had been taken apart and then kind of reassembled as the glowing naked lady who mysteriously is in love with Miller, even though she's never met him. But yeah, that was a bit weird. The protomolecule is in love with Miller, I think. So fair enough. So the other thing that's surprising me is that we're still not at the end of the second book. So I don't know how many more series of this they can make, but if it's taken them two series and we're still at the end of the second book and the six books, we're never going to get to the end of the, the story on TV, I don't think, which makes me sad. Well, I feel like they've pulled some stuff in from later books, though, right. so I don't think we're really on the same, perfectly the same sort of story arc um, right. as the books. I mean, maybe we're on the same arc, I should say, but the order of events is not quite the same. So I think, I still feel like... The plot has been moving really quickly, which is good. I like that in a show. And I feel like we get a lot of developments, even in the final episode, that were pretty exciting. So it didn't it doesn't feel like, you know, they're dragging it out at all. So we've learned what the secret project was on Ganymede. Project Caliban. Project Caliban. And so, well, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but I mean, I think we know enough. Like they were basically trying to make humanoid versions of the protomolecule using children because they're evil. Yep. <laughs> I love that they just sort of throw that in there and they use children, like just in case you weren't convinced that they were terrible people. <laughs> so what about Protogen's little storage warehouse on IO at the very, very end where they evidently they have stasis pods, which is not something that I think anyone else in the belt has. Otherwise, you know, you would have seen them by now or people would be thinking about longer term space flight. But then they stick a little stasis pod in a warehouse full of them. And then and then it zooms out and they're presumably inside IO somewhere. Yeah, that was I mean, it was actually a great cliffhanger. It was and it was also very sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. Like we have OK, we put it in with all these other boxes. Who's working on it? Well, top men are working on this. So, yeah, so we've given we've been given kind of a hint of 
what we're likely to see next season in terms of, you know, the developing plot, I feel like we're going to see more of some of like the new characters like Prax. Um, I think we might see more of him since obviously his daughter is heavily involved in this new plot that's developing. They're going to take some liberties. Like it's, they're yeah. not just following the books. And so... No, and I know Prax is, you know, I think that as, as a character, he's, uh, he's adding something to the career of the Rossi. This is one steely-eyed man of science, our plant guy. And he he saved the day at the end of this episode, and that was kind of surprising. The other thing about this episode and the episode before it was that I felt like we've reached a point in the show where there's just so much emotion riding on these characters that I was getting weepy, uh, you know, at certain points, you know, when Holden was was kind of near death, even though I knew obviously that he's not going to die because he's the hero. But also in the previous episode, when Naomi is rescuing people, even though, you know, there's a certain amount of manipulativeness in a scene like that where it's like okay she's being like ridiculously selfless but it was they kind of earned it because we see what her motivation is and that she feels guilty and she should feel guilty like they you know they really have screwed up a bunch of stuff the thing that actually blew me away in the last episode not this one um was uh champa's speech when you know when he's kind of urging the belters to basically die with dignity you know the ones that couldn't get onto the the sonambulist that put a lump in my throat even the second time watching it. Same for for me as well. That was um, an incredible scene. And it does, I mean, again, it kind of brings home how much I think as viewers, we've become invested in the Belter culture and the future of the Belters. And so even though I think Bobby as a as a Martian is like such a great character and like she kind of brings on the like Martian spirit of like, get shit done and uh, and be super tough. I think that, you know, obviously we're on the side of the Belters uh, throughout the entire series. Um, and that was the other thing that we learned in this episode. All I'm going to say about that is read Babylon's Ashes. <laughs> That's all I'm <laughs> going right. to say about that. I was on the side of the belt too. And then I read Babylon's Ashes. I mean, here's the thing is that and this is one of the things that I love about this show is that, sure, we're on the side of the belt. I mean, partly just because a lot of our main characters are belters, but we're never allowed to forget that all of these players, the belt, the OPA, which, of course, represents a radical part of belt culture, Earth, Mars. The OPA is really the government of the belt, I think, at this point. I mean, but they're... It's the closest thing it has to it. Yes and no. I mean, they're still... They're subversives and they're separatists and they're, you know, they're not. Uh, well, I mean, so the OPA is riven with factions, but I think it's, yeah. you know, Fred Johnson, I think, has emerged as as the voice of the belt. You know, he's the one that spaces other at the management meeting. He's the guy who throws you out the airlock. He's the least bloodthirsty and the, and sort of the most fair minded of, of the bunch, for sure. He's not, you know, just a, a burn it all down type. And I think we've learned enough about his background that we can we kind of trust him. Do you trust him with the proto molecule? So yeah, I was gonna say that was another big reveal yes. uh, that we had in this episode. I didn't destroy our sample. I gave the proto molecule to Fred Johnson. So um, that was really interesting. I was glad that Naomi finally came clean and you know admitted that she'd put aside a little proto molecule for her uh, buddies. Do I trust Fred with it? No more than I trust any of the other actors in this drama. You know, I think it, it is true that they that the belt needs to have the proto molecule in order to 
be at the table at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a kind of, I think, very self-consciously, especially in this episode, since they even mentioned the term mutually assured destruction, um, there's a lot of talk about can weapons create peace? We know that that's not true. We've we've just been through, you know, on Earth, we've just experienced how having atomic weapons hasn't really made anybody more peaceful uh, and doesn't really solve any problems. And so it kind of comes as a, at a good time for us in Earth history right now to be thinking about this show because it really does, it raises questions that I think any group of powerful nations has to grapple with. And, you know, I don't think Fred's going to do a better job. You know, what's he going to do with it that's going to be somehow better than what Earth or Mars does with it? I mean, he's going to be using it just to show that the belt is as strong as Earth and Mars. I mean, I guess the idea, actually, I should should say, is one of the ideas of the proto-molecule, do you think that it could be like the ultimate terraforming technology? Yes. I think the idea was that had it originally reached Earth instead of freezing and ending up what eventually became Phoebe, I think it was going to terraform Earth, you know, like four billion years ago. And then it got lost on the way. And the civilization that sent it doesn't exist anymore. So, yes, it has. uh, Well, I don't think it's it's doing something on on Venus. But I, I don't think the plan is to transform Venus into habitable planet. But I think the, the technology that the protomolecule represents or kind of the things that it can do are so far beyond, you know, the science that we understand it now or, um, you know, 200 years in the future. I mean, you know, to be able to take apart that entire spaceship in the atmosphere of Venus and yet at the same time, the people in it, you know, are not instantly being corroded into pieces by the atmosphere. So it's evidently done something to, you know, stop that happening too. Well, and also it's changing the atmosphere of Venus, yes. which is what was making me think about the terraforming question. So it's, this is what's interesting about the protomolecule and ma- what makes it different, what makes it not a perfect analogy for things like atomics is that it actually does have this potential use that's entirely peaceful, at least within the terms of this series. Because if it can be used as a terraforming tool, or if it can be used as a tool to help people evolve quickly in order to um, cope with environments that are different from Earth, right? Like in order to go out without a spacesuit on. I mean, that's an interesting proposition. You know, it's it really is a dual use technology or maybe like a triple use or... The, the other thing, it's certainly down on Venus. I mean, there's some kind of intelligence or logic guiding what it's doing. Is it a tool you can use or is it a a sentient threat or even a non-sentient threat perhaps yeah i mean i think they're definitely playing with all that stuff um whether the protomolecule itself is consciousness or if it becomes conscious only once it has absorbed conscious entities right because remember the protomolecule on venus is julie mao so to the extent that it has consciousness, it may just be like, oh, I learned consciousness from this being that I absorbed. Actually, now it's absorbed uh, Miller as well, presumably. So, And I think all the other people on Eros, too. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, of course. So it has, it has all of that in there. Uh, yeah, it's chock full of consciousness now. <laughs> so apparently this is the somewhat off topic, but I know it's something you wrote about recently. The Elon Musk brain machine. Mm-hmm. Did you read this long thing that, that someone wrote today? I must admit, I gave up a quarter of the way through because it's illustrated with a lot of cartoons and stick figures. It's a, a long, long article that, about the eventual plans for Neuralink. And, and that's to upload everyone's consciousness into a pooled singularity online or something. 
Yeah. Nothing, yeah no, it, it couldn't possibly go wrong. Now, is this a person who's just trying to interpret what Elon Musk wants to do or? Elon Musk tweeted the link. Okay. So Elon is, is down with it. I believe so. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because of course that is something that, you know, happens all the time in science fiction. And usually the idea of uploading your consciousness into like a group consciousness is not generally a good thing. Like I'm trying to think of any example in science fiction where it's sort of a positive. I mean, certainly like Ra- Ramaz Nam's Nexus series, there's a, a sort of nanotech drug that people take. They can kind of network multiple brains together. They can't really, I mean, they can get to the level of networking a, a ton of brains. I mean, the thing that I like about Mez's work is that he is very careful to show that this could have a positive effect, but could also be really dark. And I think that's the best it ever gets. Like, I don't think I've ever read a story where it's like, and then we merged our brains and it was just unqualified awesome (laughs) isn't it usually represented as like the end stage of a civilization once they decide you've written everything you could ever hope to write you know you've invented everything you ever hope to invent life's just got so terminally boring that you you know all upload your consciousness and transcend into a different plane sort of like the E&M bank scenario in hydrogen sonata or something like that yep. or, yeah but even that that's i mean even that is represented as being kind of like oh no i'm not selling it as a good thing you're right it's it's sort of like almost a, a form of decadence like once you've reached a certain level it's like uh oh, we'll all just transcend our bodies and you know we'll run our brains in the cloud or something like that which you know if it works as well as the cloud works then that's going to be really fun <laughs> I've decided to run myself on Amazon Web Services now. <laughs> Actually, I just rewatched the second and third Matrix movies because I hadn't seen them in a very long time and I wasn't very impressed with them at the time. And I watched them now. I suppose they were okay. I still have a fondness in my heart, especially for the second one with the architect. And, you know, it felt like at the time it came out, I remember feeling like, finally, somebody gets how computer networks work. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of great metaphors in there for how networks actually function. But the bit I just got hung up on, which I suppose I'd forgotten, was the whole idea that, you know, they've been through this cycle six times. But all I could think about was, so if they kill everyone and destroy Zion each time, who rebuilds Zion to put it back together and then let's get all dingy again? Like, I didn't, I didn't understand how that bit worked. Right, how did they get it to look so distressed? Or it's this gigantic thing, so who rebuilds it again? I mean, yeah. the machines rebuild it and then, like, put the humans in there? I just, I, that's where I got sidetracked. <laughs> I feel like at least The Expanse never does things like that to us. I think that it's consistently, you know, hyper-realistic to the extent that it can be. I mean, obviously, you have to take liberties with space travel and things like that. But So what were some of the other big reveals in this final episode? There's the whole political shenanigans that are going on with Christian... And so I actually was not expecting that about face where he murders the nope. Martians guy. I was like, whoa, that was a very good bait and switch. Yeah, because I was really surprised initially when he finally kind of like grew a conscience. And I was like, wow, well, I'm kind of really into this character now. Yep. Like he's actually on a redemption arc. And it's like and I was like, wow, this whole show is getting very redemption arcy. And then he writes the letter. And at that point, you're like, oh, so you've seen his kid. There's like, give the medal to my kid if I'm not around. I'm handwriting a letter, you know, looks at the little file. I mean, it's obvious, right? The guy's going to top himself. Nope. No. Well, yeah, that's what I I was like, because then when I thought he was going to kill himself, I was kind of annoyed by that because I was like, oh, what a cop out. Uh Because if he kills himself, he won't be able to testify and they'll be kind of left in even worse shit than they're in. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, again, I think that's this is sort of testimony to 
the nuance and realism in this show because I think another show would have definitely just been like, we're all in for redemption arcs and like every character is going to have their redemption arc. And it's just, no, you know, this guy is just going to stay basically a craphead and then claim that it's Christian who kind of taught him to do that, which, you know, she is a manipulator, but I feel like she never does stuff like that. Like we've never seen her, well, I guess we've seen her torture people. So she's not that nice. But <laughs> I think the difference is that she doesn't want a war. Yeah. I think she'll do whatever she thinks needs to be done to keep Earth safe. But she doesn't actively want a war. Whereas I think Aaron Wright, he wants war with Mars. Does he or does he just want sovereignty for Earth? I guess there's very little difference between the two things. I guess if what you want is Earth to be on top then, you know, you may be inviting a war anyway. But so I guess now the way that it's been kind of left is that Mao is once more working with Earth. Well, I mean, once they retake Mao's ship, she has Aaron Wright on tape, you know, confessing his nefarious plan. Are they going to retake the ship? I thought they were just going to get the hell out of the ship. I mean, Bobby Draper's wearing that suit of power arm. I mean, it's, it's basically theirs now. She can punch through the bulkheads on that. Did you love that spaceship, by the way? It's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, as, as a vehicle expert, how did you feel about that ship? It's lovely. In one of the books, they, there was this lovely description of one of these, like, the, these space yachts of the ultra wealthy and how the anti-spalling nets are all, you know, like tapestry fabric and that kind of thing. And I think they did a good job. They brought that to life really well. I still get slightly confused with the orientation of the spaceships because you have, obviously, you know, you have the drive at the bottom and they're built in levels like a skyscraper. So... They kind of you, you fly in a different axis to the one that you would think, you know, in Star Wars, for example. Um, that always requires a little a little recalibrating in my brain. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of them do kind of behave like classic spaceships where they're kind of horizontal, not vertical looking. So you're expecting it to be <laughs> turning on its side. And the angles they use. Yeah. But it's uh, so that that always confuses me. And there was even the comment uh, when, whenever Sarala, when Christian boards the ship makes a comment about the sofas. Yeah, no, she's very like, okay, this is a lovely ship. Yeah, I love that. It, it kind of, I mean, it, that's like one of the things that I always liked about the Dune series was the fact that we get to see a civilization, a space going civilization that's so advanced that their ships have become like castles. Or the sci-fi ones, because there were two. Well, I was thinking of kind of the just the the world of dune oh, okay. um, yes. in the books and in the you know i mean we see it in the in the original lynch film which i know is not a popular film but i still like it it's a fantastic film have you seen the ridiculously long isn't there, there's a cut that's i don't know almost four hours or something isn't there mm -hmm, the the crazy person cut yes i have seen the crazy person cut <laughs> I don't think it's actually called that. But yeah, no, I like I, and I actually like the sci-fi ones, too. Um, they were not not bad at all. But yeah, I think that that idea is reflected in The Expanse, where it's like once you're in space for long enough, you're not going to just have these kind of utilitarian ships or even a Star Trek type ship, which even though in, say, Next Generation, you know, the ship is real nice, but it's still pretty utilitarian. I mean, it has the equivalent of like airport rug and like it's not really fancy despite the fact that i guess like data has a cat and you know people have paintings on their walls and things like that but yeah this was true but no bed sheets do they have bed sheets or was it i mean their beds are weird yeah i mean i feel like <laughs> i feel like star trek has a really has an issue with both pajamas and beds because they do have sheets that are very they're nominal sheets 
and then everybody has really terrible pajamas. So yeah, that's just a, a just a problem with that universe, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek universe just can't get its mind around future beds. Whereas I think on, you know, Mao's ship, you can imagine them having like a beautiful four poster bed with like special gravity in that one room to make it, you know, perfectly soft and like perfectly, you know, relaxing. And, uh, you know, maybe that's even a product that they sell. So I guess like the thing that that final kind of confrontation between Mao and Christian and Earth and then it kind of peripherally the belt, although they're not actually in that scene, it's kind of making me realize that there's really four powers at play here because Mao and his company really are almost at the level of a planetary power. And don't they, in the books, don't they own the moon or they're just on the moon or? I, no, I think they're on the moon. But certainly they are, I mean, they're rich enough that they are a non-state actor. I mean, they are basically owning up entire moons and space stations and things like that. So effectively, they are a, a kind of state power. So that's interesting. And they're evil. You mentioned earlier that, you know, the, a lot of the, the characters are very human. Certainly we haven't seen Mao's human side yet. Not really. I mean, it's true. He is the biggest cipher and we don't know what his motivations are. We don't know if he's, yeah, is he just pure evil? Is he, does he, is he telling himself some sort of Silicon Valley-esque lie about libertarianism where he's just saying like, well, this is just the way business works. And like, you know, I don't need to worry about morals because who cares? It's all about profit. Yeah, we just don't know. And and we haven't really seen the Mao family kind of, even though we hear about them a lot. I mean, we've met Julie Mao, in a sense, we've met her, but we don't, yeah, we don't have a sense of this dynasty. Whereas I think with, at this point, with the belt and Mars and Earth, we've seen a lot of world building. You know, we've, we've really gotten to know their cultures and we feel like, well, you know, not perfectly, but I think we feel like we kind of are familiar with a lot of the the cultural issues for those groups. So yeah, maybe, maybe it would be fun if we could get, you know, an episode that was basically the Mao episode. And maybe we will next season. Mm-hmm. He mentions one of his other daughters, Clarissa, and she's, she's definitely going to show up at some point. But Yes, the beloved daughter who is thinking of defecting from the family. Yes. So I, I'd assumed series one would be book one, series two would be book two. And the story, the pacing of the story, I think this is something that's that I've noticed, is that one episode will skip you through you know, several chapters of the book and advances the plot quite far. And then the next episode, whilst a lot happens and, and the storytelling is still very compelling, it may only go through, you know, say a chapter or like two or three pages and then tells you some other story. So we're still not even at the end of book two with some of the cliffhangers there. So I now have no idea. Mm. Yeah, I have no idea where season three is going to go at this point because I'm, I'm confused. I probably have to read the books again. I mean, A, yes, of course, you should always read the books again. And I think we should urge everyone who's listening to go out and buy those books because they're so fun. And they're, you know, I mean, they, they just had a new one come out. So, you know, it's it's an it's an unending, awesome ride. Well, not unending, but <laughs> it's, it's as you said, it's gone a lot farther than the than the show. But at the same time, I think the TV show has to stand on its own. Yep. And I don't I don't think that they have I don't think that the showrunners have any plans to stick entirely to the novels. I think that some of the characters in there. I mean, I, I, Clarissa Mayer has a big enough arc. I'm, I'm fairly sure we'll see her. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just not sure when I think it's 
and no, I think the TV series is doing a, it's doing a good job of um, standing its own feet with the way it tells the story. I really, yeah, it's just, I feel like it's just gotten better and better. I felt like that it got a little bit off the rails earlier this season. Um, as I already kind of mentioned snarkily, um, I really didn't like kind of the way that Miller slash Julie Mao plot went just because it didn't feel like they'd earned it. It felt really kind of Lee press on plot with, you know, Miller kind of having a crush on this, you know, manic pixie dream girl. And then turns out that she actually is a dream and she she's a sparkly she'd never met him and that that was the thing that i hated about that scene was i was like okay look the proto molecule possesses her memories and knows you know in a sense who she knows and who she's met so why would she suddenly be like oh miller i'm so into you let's kiss you know one thing that i would forgive them for if it turned out to be true was you know maybe it went into miller's mind and was like well what does miller want to see like what would be an acceptable manifestation that he would be emotionally attached to and then kind of you know, display that to him. But we haven't gotten any sense that that's what really happened. Like, I think no. it was supposed to be that, you know, Miller loves her and she loves him in some mystical, dumb way. And I just when that happened, I was really um, it really threw me out of the story because I was like, come on, all of the rest of this story feels so real. And, and the characters like feel very nuanced. And then this was just like really tone deaf. But then I felt like the narrative really got back on track and, and, you know, the proto molecule again became this mysterious force and it became a kind of political football, which is what drew me to the series in the first place was that, you know, that it wasn't going to be sparkly naked lady. It was going to be like, no, we're talking about gritty, realistic interplanetary politics. Um, so I had a redemption arc <laughs> with, with the narrative itself where I felt like it really, by the end of the season, I was just like completely, completely back into it. And, you know, it, I am totally sold on it. So, and God damn it, I have to wait another year to see more. <laughs> I mean, and I could, of course, read the books, you know, to slake my thirst. So what do you think that there is an element of the expanse that is playing with um, the same ideas that Elon Musk is playing with, with this Neuralink company, which for those of you who haven't been following, um, you know, the latest Elon Musk's weird project news, which I feel like there's a new a new weird project every month. But the latest is a company that he's associated with called Neuralink, which is not a new diet supplement, even though it sort of sounds like it should be. It's a it's just basically um, a research project to develop better brain computer interfaces. And we already have some brain computer interfaces that are used in medicine today. The prosthetic limb ones are getting quite good, I believe. They are quite good. So basically brain controlled, often they get called bionic arms, but yeah, they're just prosthetic limbs that, um, that connect up to the nervous system. There's also brain implants for Parkinson's patients that help regulate some of the symptoms of Parkinson's. Um, and that's actually a brain computer interface. And uh, there's some implants for depression. Technically, if you wanted to be a pedant, which I I do. You could even say that a pacemaker. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. the heart, it's the heart's electrical system. But I mean, even that is a yeah. human machine interface. But this specifically brain computer interface. And so these would have to be in the brain. But yeah, I agree. A pacemaker is, is a perfect example of, of machine human interface. And it's, it's working on some of the same principles. Like you said, I mean, it's, it's hooking up to, you know, electrical system of the body. So anyway, 
Musk wants to make much better versions of this, which will allow us to basically, I think, become networked devices. So in addition to the Internet of Things, we will have the Internet of Brains. And Neuralink is going to bring that to us. Why do I want to connect my brain to the Internet? I don't think that's a very good idea. (laughs) What, What could go wrong? What could go wrong? That's my question. I mean, do you think that the expanse is kind of playing with that fantasy of of what if not so much the could we link up to the internet because I don't even think they have the internet really in in this future. I mean, I guess they have viral videos, but the idea that our minds could be could become information and become something that's kind of, you know, attached to a new entity. I no, I don't I don't think we're going there. You're like just no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're only going by, you know, what's in the rest of the books. No, that kind of thing doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. But as you say, they could be going different places with the with the TV show. I think, to be honest, the human understanding of the proto-molecule is still so, at such a basic level. You know, I, I don't know that the humans who have access to the proto-molecule understand, would understand it well enough to do something like that. Right. Um, it would be like giving me, you know, asking me to reverse engineer my iPhone. If you gave me the right size screwdriver, I could probably open the case without cracking it but i'm never going to build another one you're not so you're saying you're not going to be hooking your brain up to your iphone no i don't think i'm gonna be doing that either i even (laughs) i even think the idea of implanting magnets under fingertips to open doors is kind of icky to be honest but Uh i'm not a transhumanist yeah i mean it's not i don't think it's icky but i i I question whether that's really where the technology is going (laughs) so if if the fantasy in the expanse isn't really about um linking up brains or like turning brains into information what do you think it is i mean what is the what does the proto molecule represent is it just pure mystery is it is it about humans trying to struggling to understand something that's truly alien and kind of getting it wrong every time or what what is i think there's definitely some of trying to understand it and maybe ending up doing a 23rd century version of cargo cults possibly <laughs> yes that's really funny yeah because it is kind of that you know humans are just like oh it must be something amazing because it's alien and it's doing all this crazy crap yeah it's just like that rick and morty episode where like the heads come to earth and everybody is trying to worship them and then it turns out that the heads are really just there for like a music contest and you know it's just like that I've only just started watching that. I think I'm only two episodes in. <laughs> well, I just gave you a spoiler on the head episode. <laughs> but so, yeah, so a little bit like the cargo cult thing. I also feel like it's kind of there's a, a certain amount of like the morality tale where humans find something that they don't understand. And they're immediately like, how can I punch somebody with this? One of the... Um, the deep stories that we see over and over in sci-fi is, you know, that one of humanity's failings is that we always fall back on violence and that we come, maybe it's because we come from a violent species or because we evolved and we're still just not really out of that phase or, or just maybe we're just bad, you know, different stories come up with different kind of explanations. But, you know, at the same time, there are humans in this story who are trying to use the protomolecule for good, we haven't quite seen what the good might be. And that's no. interesting to explore because, like I said, it could be terraforming. That could be a good use. Um, it could be uh, rapid evolution of humans so that they would be better suited for the worlds that they're colonizing. Could be for medicine. Is that really a good thing? Changing human beings to colonize other worlds. 
bio alterations so you could live on the surface of Ganymede or whatever. Well, it's good for the human who's been altered to live on Ganymede. It's not there's native Ganymedians who are now going to be pushed out of their habitats by these interlopers. So it kind of depends. <laughs> space space gentrification. It's a uh, space colonization, you know. I mean, it's colonialism, but space style. I think we're pretty satisfied in this show that there are no native creatures on these planets. I mean, I think just to make things simpler, that's not an issue. And there's not really any kind of native habitats that are being destroyed. But in real life, there might be. You know, we're now learning more and more about possible ocean habitats on moons. And when we do go to those moons, we may be polluting them. Something to think about for future fiction. Did the Russians drill into um, the Antarctic Lake, I think Lake Baikal? Um, yes, there was they, a lot of concern, and, but there was a lot of concern before they did that, you know, mm-hmm. um, lubricants and whatever else from that drilling probe would contaminate the lake. Did that happen? I suppose it probably did. Probably did. I haven't read any reports about contamination, but yeah, they did. They did uh, drill into the lake and they did find some extremophiles in there. If we screwed up every other environment on Earth, what's one more? Way to, way to go, guys. Look. What was Antarctica like 35 million years ago? It was a tropical paradise. Mm. So you could argue that the way it is now is actually has been destroyed. So maybe we're just bringing it back. Yep. Make Antarctica tropical again. That That's what we're going to do with the proto-molecule. Did you notice the, the seawall around Manhattan on some of the zoom out shots in the last couple of episodes? Yes. So I wonder how much higher sea level is now. In Oh, in this series. I mean, it's obviously higher. And I love that. That's one of the, again, I'm not to keep just saying how great the series is, but that's that's something that I love is just those little kind of corner details where you get the sense of like, oh, yeah, of course, you know. Cause, and they do talk a lot about how Earth has destroyed its own ecosystem and how the Martians are particularly disgusted by that because they've been working so hard to have an ecosystem at all, or at least one that can support humans. So yeah, I thought the the comments of the Martian defense minister before he got before he got whacked were quite interesting about how this whole generation of Martians have grown up living in the tunnels. They're worrying that the you know next generation has lost that zeal to build a, a Mars they can go outside on because they're used to these underground cities. Yeah, the hardship of being a a settler, I guess, is is no more or less, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think I love that they bring up generational politics because that is like you know. I mean, it's just sort of our own. It's like people talking about millennials now, you know, and saying, like, ah, they don't understand because they, you know, they didn't have to grow up in, you know, low oxygen environments. Or, or without $400 juices that squeeze packets of juice. <laughs> exactly. So uh, there's a whole generation that just doesn't understand. And, and I mean, there's no reason to think that we won't have that same kind of generational politics once we move elsewhere in the solar system. So... So I, I loved I loved the way it went out on um, with Naomi's speech. I thought it was uh, visually. I thought some of those scenes were beautiful, particularly the I said this earlier, but particularly like the precise dismantling um, of the Arbogast. I thought that was just that, that visually was a fantastic way to end the show. And then obviously the 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 stinger at the end, which is that there's this shady warehouse, presumably buried under the surface of Io. I mean, I just that's really chilling. 
Yeah, because we we just don't know how deep the protogen conspiracy goes, basically, Lit- literally how deep, but also, you know, kind of how much they've already done with the proto molecule. It was like the Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. um, warehouse, as you said earlier. I mean, it's yeah, who, like there was a lot of stasis pods in there. I know. And who knows what the heck is in those pods? So in terms of visuals, one of the other moments that I loved was when Alex, the pilot, has to do the gravity assist landing on Ganymede and he plots the uh, course. The slingshot, yep. Yeah, the slingshot. And there's a lot of great use of augmented reality in that scene, which having just been using the new Facebook VR system, uh, it it was a bit recognizable. Um, Of course, it worked a lot better than Facebook spaces. But and just when he is doing that maneuver, he kind of looks out and we see all the planets and moons lined up. And he says, that's a sight to see. And it really is, you know, there's he, he takes that second to remind us that, holy shit, we're in space. And like, yep. there's all this other stuff happening. But like, look out the window. It's incredible. So that's, you know, again, part of what makes this show worth coming back to is the the beauty, the escapism, the space adventure, coupled with dirty, dirty politics. Well, thanks for joining me, Annalie. It's been a fun season. Thanks again for having me on. And um, I can't wait for next season. Looking forward to it. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So... Be here next week and we'll talk some more.